So we are in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, the third commandment, where we read, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So we are, we are in the middle of a study of the Ten Commandments in which we have uh, studied uh, by way of introduction the place and the role of the law in the Christian life. If you were there this morning, you will have heard it said repeatedly that our, our responsibility is to preach law and gospel. Law that condemns us, law that uh, shows us our sin and drives us uh, to Christ, that exposes our need of a Savior, and gospel which presents then that Savior the benefits of whose uh, life and death and resurrection are received by faith alone and not by works and not by law. Uh, but then Jesus sends us back to the law uh, that we might know what pleases him. If you love me, he says, you will keep my commandments. Uh, Ten commandments are divided into two tables. Uh, the first table is, uh, is an elaboration of our duty toward God. What does it mean to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Well, it means that you have no other gods. He alone is to be served and worshipped. It means that uh, you worship him in the manner that he prescribes, and so you are not to um, utilize graven images or anything else that's unauthorized in worship. Uh, so the way of worship is the, the subject of the second commandment. And then the third commandment is uh, the, the how, the attitude with which we serve and worship God. And uh, thus far, we have looked at uh, three headings after providing an exposition of each of the words of take, name, in vain, and, and then the, the, the punishment that's threatened. We looked under three headings. One is that it prohibits a profane use of God's name, which we elaborated in terms of blasphemy, uh, uh, pronouncing curses on others and uh, profane swearing. Uh, then we looked at uh, irreverent invoking of God's name, that is flippantly and without uh, sobriety and seriousness, and then an empty uh, use of, of God's name. So we move on, number four, uh, to insincere. An insincere invoking of the name of God. Uh, that is, when we call upon God, we invoke his name as a mere formality. Uh, this has particularly to do with the way that we go about worshiping. Uh, for example, if one rotely recites uh, the fixed forms that we have in our worship service. So we have a number of them, don't we? We, we recite uh, the creed on Sunday morning. We repeat the Lord's Prayer. Um, we have some form of the doxology and the Gloria Patri every Sunday. Sunday night, we use uh, the Ten Commandments. We recite... Uh, these Westminster-derived um, uh, confessions for the uh, Sunday evenings. If, uh, if we do that rotely, without any understanding, without any, any meeting, meaning, without any intention, uh, but just as a matter of course, just as a, a mere formality, we are using the Lord's name in a vain way. If we offer thoughtless prayers, if we sing mindlessly, if we... Uh, allow our thoughts to wander through the reading of the scripture and through the preaching of the sermon. If we're pulling out our cell phones and looking at various messages coming to us, either through social media or text messages or emails or whatever, uh, then we're taking the name of the Lord in vain because we are not calling upon him in the public services of the church or in private worship in, in a way that is suited to the fullness of who God is and 
what it means for all that is within us in the language of Psalm 103, all that in, was, is within us uh, to bless his holy name. No, that's to take the name's Lord in vain. Uh, the classic authors uh, warn us of lip labor and of half duties. Uh, they warn us that it's hypocritical to, to pretend uh, to worship God earnestly and wholeheartedly when in fact for us it is just a matter of form. It's a mere formality for us. Uh, further, to hypocritically pretend a right relationship with God while living otherwise also violates the third commandment. Uh, so as, a, as an example of what, what uh, is, is meant here, the Apostle Paul in Romans 2.24 uh, says, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And this, uh, this follows a, a, a litany of failures on the part of the people of God to obey the commandments, to claim to obey the commandments, but they don't really do it. They don't really obey the commands. They violate the commands. Uh, they're, they're in violation of all of the commands. They're pretending to be in conformity with them, but they're not in conformity with them. And what to what end, with what result? Well, the name of God is blasphemed. Oh, the world recognizes this. These people are hypocrites. They are pretending to be one thing when, in fact, they are a, a, another thing. This is an insincere invoking of the name of God. We take on, we take up. Thou shalt not take or take up. As Christians, we take up. We're called Christians. We take up the name of Christ. Uh, we are known as God's people. We take that up and take that on. We bear that name. And for us to do so and to not really mean it and to not live in a way that's consistent with uh, what God calls his people to do, uh, that is an, in, an, an insincere and vain and empty um, taking upon oneself the name of God. And the results are disastrous, as I, as I think you well know. And one of the most common excuses that people give for not going to the church is a bunch of hypocrites. Yeah. Um, whether it was at home that uh, everybody was nice and, 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 and polite and, and freshly scrubbed at church and then would turn around and live quite to the contrary all during the week except Sunday when at church, again, we put on our faces and dressed ourselves up and got cleaned up and brushed up uh, and, and looked, looked uh, civil and, and devout uh, when, we, when we really weren't. This is the complaint of people about what the homes they were brought up in or the churches that they belonged to. Everybody knew in the church about the scandals that were going on uh, within, within the congregation or old Mr. So-and-so who was uh, mean and, and ornery and, and there was very little love in the congregation and people didn't communicate with each other and nobody cared about them, nobody talked to them, nobody showed any interest in them. People just walked in and walked out and so they walked out the last time and never came back. So that, that's, that's the warning of, of Romans 2.24 is to take up, to take on the name of God, to be known as a Christian, be known as a believer, one of the people of God, uh, to be known as God's people, and to not live the life of sacrificial love, to not live the life of, of uh, the high moral standards that are required of the Bible. Now, I'm not talking about living perfectly. Nobody lives perfectly. We're all sinners. That's why we're here every Sunday morning, Sunday night, confessing our sins. That's why on a daily basis... Jesus teaches us to confess our sins. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Every day we should be confessing our sins. We know we're not perfect, of course. Um, but the, 
There's a difference between imperfectly conforming to what God requires of his people and not conforming to what he requires at all. Right? We, there, there's a difference, and we, we can recognize the difference. We know the difference. We can see the difference. We can identify the difference. There are those who are devout. They imperfectly obey God. They imperfectly serve Christ, but they re, they're, they're sincere. They're earnest. They're above reproach in the language of the qualifications for officers. Uh, there's a difference between that and, and those who do not conform themselves at all. We have uh, no intention of living um, a life of sacrificial love, having the attitude that is in Christ Jesus, regarding others as more important than, than themselves, looking out not merely for their own interests, but the interests of others also. It's all the language of Philippians 2. No, that's not in there. That's not in their agenda. Uh, so the insincere invoking of the, of, the, of the name of God is the fourth item that we have identified as being prohibited by this commandment. Number five, an unorthodox or heretical uh, calling upon God, invoking uh, the name of God. That too is a vain use of his name. So, for example, to say that one is a Christian, one is a believer, one is a member of the church, and to deny the doctrine of the Trinity or the dual nature of Christ or salvation by grace or to not deny the holiness of God, that is a blasphemous invoking of his name. It is a vain, empty, meaningless, um, and destructive, all at the same time, use of his name. Or, uh, more to the point, to redefine God's character in order to enlist him in our causes. So th this is the problem with civil religion. Civil religion has this tendency, by civil I mean that there's this kind of broad religiosity that that is characteristic of a given nation, um, kind of the public religion. Um, we have, uh, still we have a, a number of ways in which we invoke God as a nation, and I'm not trying to comment on whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, but you know, we open sessions of Congress with prayer and open the Supreme Court with prayer, and uh, you know, there are prayers at the inauguration of the president, so for these, that's all, I'm not commenting on that, I'm just saying there is a, there is a generic kind of civil religion, and every nation has something of that. And it spills over into saying, well, God is on our side. We are God's people. There's this uh, fabulous scene in the World War II movie, The Longest Day. It came out in the 1960s, star-studded movie, all right? And there's this uh, sequence of, of uh, scenes where... As I recall, one of the American officers says after a setback, whose side is God on anyway? And then right after that, one of the German officers says, whose side is God on anyway? So this is typical. We think God is on our side as, as a nation, as a people. And so we enlist him in our cause as though our cause as a nation were, were the, that, as though that, to confuse that with the kingdom of God. Is, is, you know, is, the, is there a nation that can be identified one-to-one -one with the kingdom of God, as though God were concerned about the nation in the same way that he's concerned about the building of his own kingdom and of his own church. Uh, the answer to that would be no. And I think that uh, nationalists and, and uh, conservatives have been, I think, rightly criticized because they have been too quick to say that God is on our side. 
Um, however, that's, that's not a problem that is restricted to conservatives. I think all across the political spectrum, there have been those who have wanted to enlist God and in, in their cause. God is a vegetarian. God is for climate change. God is a pacifist. These are the things that get said. During World War I, I think every single nation uh, that was involved in that war said God is on our side. Mainline Protestants, I think, have been particularly notorious in this regard. The name of God being hijacked uh, as an endorsement of the things that he abhors. Uh, for example, we have going on in the, in the country right now, we have churches that are ordaining drag queens uh, who have uh, utterly normalized and sanctioned um, uh, active homosexual relationships, are hosting Pride Month, who are rewriting the Lord's Prayer because it's supportive of the patriarchy, our Father. That's just unacceptable. To say that God is a Father, I mean, that, that just reinforces the, the patriarchy. We can't have, we can't have that. Um, they are, there are uh, forces in the main line that want to dismantle what they call heteronormativity, there, um, there's an endorsing of the publishing of what's called the queer Bible. Uh, so, so what is all that? All that is, is enlisting God uh, and redefining his character in order to enlist him in the support of our causes. It, it is to whitewash his justice, his righteousness, his holiness, and redefine his love in such a way as to obliterate the moral categories. That's how you end up with a rainbow Jesus. That's the only way that you get there. You have to enlist God in your cause and then redefine his character in order to ensure that, that uh, he is a support of, of your particular cause. The, the God of the rainbow coalition is, is a figment of the heretical imagination. Uh, the God of the Rainbow Coalition is a Molech that consumes the children of its practitioners. So when we take up God's name in order to pr promote unorthodox doctrine or heretical moral notions, we take his name in vain. We blaspheme his name when we do this. Number six. So we've looked at insincere invoking into the name of God, unorthodox or heretical invoking of the name of God. And then numbers, uh, number six, manipulative. I have two things in mind here. A, a magical or superstitious use of his name. Uh, this may be the original context within which this command is given. So the, in the ancient world, the idea that was if, if you could name a thing, you could control it. That to name the name of the, one of the gods was to, uh, was to, uh, to, to, to gain the power to control, to manipulate, um, to acquire power over. See, naming, uh, the naming function is a controlling function. So parents name children. Why? Because they have a measure Certainly not perfect, certainly not absolute, but a measure of control over their children. Um, conquerors name and rename cities and territories. Uh, why? Because that's a function of control. It's a function of power to be able to name a thing. And so in the ancient world, there was a kind of word magic. 
that uh, if you could know the name, you could thereby compel the God or the gods to do your, your bidding. Now, I think that there is a hint of this in medical science still today. So when, when, we are on, when we are able to identify and name a disease and affliction, we are, down, we, we have, we are well on down the road of, of being able to cure that thing. All right, so we are able to identify it. We understand what it is. We're able to put a name on it, put a label on it. We are, we are on the way. We are, we are moving toward um, conquering that, that, controlling that disease once we are able to name it. Now, contrast that with when we are not able to name it. Contrast that with when you're suffering terrible uh, terrible symptoms, and no one knows what's causing it. You see, there's no control then. We don't know what's going on. It's a terror to us when we're not able to name the thing. We're not able to do anything about it when we're not able to put a label on the thing. We're not able to name the thing. And so we search for answers. We look for someone who's able to identify what the problem is, because if we can't identify what the problem is, we can't solve it. We can't control it. We're not able to master it. So I think there's this lingering sense that to name to put a label on a thing, to put an identity on a thing, is, a, is a, a kind of power to control it over against the hopelessness that we feel when we're not able to identify the source of the symptoms that are afflicting us. It's blasphemous to think that we can control or compel God to do anything. He is sovereign. So is that a question uh, or is that a problem in our day? Well, let me just suggest a, a couple of ways from the trivial to the more important uh, ways in which uh, it might be. So when I was brought up, quite correctly and rightly, I was taught to end all of my prayers in Jesus' name, amen. Everybody else got taught that? If you didn't, you should have been. Uh, what does that mean? That, that, that means that our prayers are accepted only as we offer them in the name of, through the person of Jesus Christ. He is the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Uh, he, he promised when we pray in his name that he will grant our request. But the prayer has to be offered in Jesus' name uh, for that to be effective. But the, the way I understood it was as a kind of formula that you put at the end of the prayer. So I remember, and it, it didn't matter how the, the, the one leading the service was praying. He might have started, oh, Lord, we come to you in the, in the name of the King of kings and Lord of lords, our Lord Jesus Christ through his merits and mediation and gone on and prayed. And then got to the end of the prayer and just said, amen. So we pray all these things in your name, amen. Or we just, all, we just pray these things, period, amen. You know what I thought? Oh, <laughs> didn't, didn't get through. No, the prayer didn't get through at all. Uh, why not? Because it didn't have the formula at the end. You, you don't put the formula on at the end. It's a kind of magic. It means your prayer gets through. And now where's, where's the evidence that there are people who are probably praying in that way? I would say, by the way, that they rush through the ending. If you end your prayer saying, in Jesus' name, amen, where you just race through, didn't amen. Can't even hardly understand what a person's saying. It is so common uh, as to be absurd. So you just rush 
through that ending? What, when you rush through it like that, what, what, how are you using that, that, uh, that form of words? I think you're using it as a formula. I think you're using it as magic. I think you're using it as um, a, 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 a kind of uh, magic that, that guarantees that your prayer will be heard. Because it's not being said in a way that understands that it is only through the mediation of our Lord Jesus Christ in whose strong name we pray, amen. No, you just want to just name it. Just race that little thing on the end of there. That gets it through. That, that means God's going to hear it. That's what I've always been taught I should do. So I've got to put it on the end. And then you put it at the front end. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this food. In Jesus' name, amen. I mean, you might as well not even pray the prayer. If that's all that's going to be said... Again, it's kind of a magic thing. I better, I better pray for the food because I don't pray for the food. I mean, worms or something will develop within me, so I don't want that to happen. So I've got to pray for the food. For, thank you for this day. Thank you for this food and all of your blessings. Jesus, amen. What is that? That is praying as though prayer were a kind of way to guarantee some outcome, um, to guarantee that God is going to hear and to do, or, or he's not going to hurt me. He won't hurt me if I do that. You know, if I... If I pray that prayer before I eat and then I put the, put the tagline at the end, then he, he's, he's going to hear what I have to say. Um, I use prayer lists when I pray. I have a list and I look at it every single morning and I pray for a whole list of things. Um, and I try to be very faithful about that. And basically, you know, this is a daily discipline for me. So I pray through that prayer list. However, and I think prayer lists are a good thing. I think that you easily forget the things that you really wanted to be praying for, and you can't, I, you know, the brain atrophies with age, and you know, frankly, I'm getting a little older, and so, you know, I forget things if I don't write them down. By the way, when you walk out the front door that's the back door of the church, and you give me a verbal message, you might as well just go spit in the wind. If you think I'm going to remember that, you better write it down and put it, the note in my pocket to make sure, because I'm just not going to remember. So I need a list. I think lists are good things. It means that we remember to pray for all the things that we really think are important and should be praying for. But can you begin to rattle off lists, again, in a way that is superstitious? If I don't pray for these things, I'm, God's going to hurt me. If I don't pray for these things... Um, if I do pray for these things, even if I just rattle them off, we pray for this, 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 pray for this, amen. What is that? That's pagan prayer. And uh, Jesus denounces it as pagan prayer. He condemns those. This is Matthew 6, 7. This is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Those who are guilty of vain repetitions, as it was in the King James, empty phrases. Don't pray like the pagans, like the Gentiles, who think they will be heard for their many words as they just babble on, mantra-like, repeating things over and over. Uh, TV preachers, I think, at least the TV preachers of another generation, I haven't seen them for a while, but you go back a generation of TV preachers, the way that they would invoke the name as they were commanding God to heal or to give them cars and wardrobes and houses in the name, you know, would be in the name of Jesus. You know, there was that cadence to in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. On, on there we go. Again, as, as, as though uh, prayer was, was a kind of magic, a way to coerce things out of God or manipulate God or to ensure that we would get things out of, out of God. I, I have questions about 
the hymn that was, again, popular in the 70s. You know, Emily often tells me all of my illustrations are from the 1970s or World War II. <laughs> to which I answer, I'm just not good at illustrations and I got to use what I got. All right, so, so there, there was a very popular song back then, Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name. Just something. What, 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 what do you mean? Is it, you know, first of all, are you talking about the syllables? Is it, is it just, you know, Jesus? Is it the, you know, in Greek it's different. It's Yesu. So I don't think it's the syllables. I don't think it's the sound. I think it's not just vocalizing the name as though there were some power in vocalizing and expressing the name. If you think that, you're into magic. Um, is, there isn't just something. He is the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords. Uh, that name is the name that is above every name, and it's at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It's not just something. It's just, oh, it's just something wistful about his name. Something uh, just inspiring about the syllables. No, it's the person. The name is the person. That's what inspires. That's what's important. All right, so is, is it a problem? Manipulative use of the name of God? I think so. There's these magical uses, superstitious uses. And then there's dishonest uses. Used to manipulate others. So we invoke the name of God so that people will believe us when we say something or people will do something for us. So uh, an example would be a false oath. And we'll say more about oaths next time. But Matthew 26, 14, Peter denies that he knows Jesus. I do not know the man. He does it with an oath. Put himself under oath to spare himself so that he would be believed. That was a dishonest invoking of the name of God. Um, to invoke the name of God with mental reservations is another dishonest or with equivocations where the oath taker's meaning is different from that of the listener. Uh, so, for example, Wilhelmus Brockel, the Dutch commentator from the 18th century, refers to these as Jesuit pranks. For example, if you know, the Protestant authorities would interview a, a, a Jesuit priest and would say, are you a priest? He would say, oh, no, I'm not a priest. And the mental reservation was, I'm not a priest of Venus. So in, so in other words, being put under oath and swearing that one is not a priest because one has this mental reservation. Uh, one one is, uh, is, is, in, is in giving, 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 one, give, giving the, the answer a private interpretation that is not the understanding of the person that's asking the question or is, or is hearing the statement. Another example would be when John Huss and Jerome Prague were promised safe conduct as they were put on trial by the Council of Constance in 1415. Uh, the council then found that, that Huss and, 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 and uh, Jerome were guilty of heretic, and then they revoked their oath. And they said, uh, promises to heretics need not be kept. So in other words, what was meant by the safe conduct was different than what the hearers understood. Safe conduct, according to the Huss and Jerome, meant that once we are on trial 
and the, and the determination is made, we are allowed to go safely back home. But that's not what was meant. That's what was heard, but that's not what was meant. There was this mental reservation. Uh, so that uh, Huss and Jerome both were burned at the stake uh, by the authorities. Uh, so now, when we, when we make promises, more about promises next time, uh, the promises need to be used. We need to make those promises in language that people understand without equivocation, without reservation. Others must uh, uh, understand from us uh, the, the ordinary meaning of our language. We must use language as understood by others, even when that means that loss or harm may be the result for us. So Psalm 24, 4 says... He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully. So that's a thing that's at, at issue. Is it a, a deceitful or a, a dishonest or a manipulative uh, promise that's being made, oath that's being taken? Are, are you being taken under oath, swearing, swearing to tell the truth, but telling the truth in a way that is deceitful, that is dishonest? that isn't true, that isn't using language that isn't understood by others uh, to mean what you say that it means? Okay, there's, there are two kind of oaths that, uh, that the Bible scholars tend to identify. The one is a promissory oath where you're taken under oath promising to do a certain thing, and then there's an, an assertatory oath in which you are um, put under oath uh, so that uh, swearing to tell, as we say in our courts, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. So you're taking God's name to assert that a thing is true, when one done that thus makes the promise or asserts the thing, our language needs to be the language that is understood by others rather than, rather than using oaths and, and, and promises as, as, a, as a vehicle to deceive others. Here's another passage. Psalm 15.4 speaks of the, the man of God, the person of God, swears to his own hurt and does not change. He's made a promise. Turns out the promise is, is, is going to be detrimental to him. He's, he's going to lose money. He's going to lose face. Um, some other undefined thing. Does he need to keep his promise? Yes, he does. He, he swears to his own, own harm and does not change. He keeps his promise. So the people of God are people of their word. They're not trying to manipulate other people. They're not trying to manipulate God on the one. They're not trying to manipulate other people as well. We, we take upon the name of God when we become believers. When we further take upon his name as when we are taken under oath or that we swear that a thing or a promise that a thing is, is true or that we're going to do a thing, there needs to be integrity about the people of God that we do what we say we will do. We honor our promises. We fulfill uh, our oaths. We do what we say that we are going to do. So, membership oaths. Support the church and the worship, uh, its worship and work to the best of your ability. You take, we're taking under oath. You promise that. Um, you promise to support the church and its work uh, to the best of your ability, and you promise uh, that you would submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church. 
Did you hold that in reservation? Are you going to equivocate on that? Or do you mean it? Government, what if the government discipline works contrary to what you think is your best interest? You took that vow, didn't you? Uh, how about marriage vows? How about uh, the tell death do us part? It's the way Evan likes to say it. What I say, as long as we both shall live. But there's something emphatic about until death do us part. Uh, what, what are we going to do? We are going to be ex exclusively faithful uh, for better or for worse. Those are the vows. Did you mean it? Are you equivocating? Do you have these mental reservations except when? We know what the exception is. The exception is adultery. Otherwise, there is none. Unfaithfulness more broadly understood. Immorality, more broadly understood. So this is, um, this is what it means to not take the name of the Lord in vain. It means that we only invoke his name, in fact, because we have taken on his name. It means that we live lives of sacrificial love and moral integrity and that we keep our promises and fulfill our vows. And we are known as such. But again, more about that next time as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, uh, we pray, O oh Lord, that we would relate to you person to person. We pray that we would not attempt in our spiritual practices to manipulate you or to manipulate others. We pray for honesty. We pray for integrity. We pray for sincerity. Pray that we would not rotely participate in worship services, that, but that all that is within us would bless your holy name. And, oh, Lord, we pray that we would never enlist you in our causes, but rather we would unconditionally enlist ourselves in your cause. In Jesus' name, amen.